Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Good afternoon everyone. My name is Renier, as Brian introduced. If you don't know me, it's not a big issue at all. I'm not here because I'm very important. I'm just here because I try to be obedient. And if you were the one that had to convince Anu out of his bikini to come to church tonight, or if you are the one that was driving somewhere over the weekend and you had to make a call and say, hey, we need to, we need to go home now. We need to leave for Secunda because church is starting at five. Or if you were the one that had to convince a two-year-old or a four-year-old to take his nap or to get dressed or whatever the case would be, for you to be here, then you're just doing exactly the same. If you were the person who had to come earlier to open the doors or to set up the band or to do brand band practice, whatever the case may be, that's, 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 that's exactly the same as standing here in front. We're just being obedient to the calling which God is giving us for today. And then tomorrow we're doing the same and the day thereafter the same. So what I want to share with us today is a twofold thing. The first part of it is a, a truth or a scripture or uh, interpretation of scripture which we all know and then break that down into a definition and go into a little bit of the terminology thereof and then look at the everyday life example so we're going to start with uh, a saying which I think everyone has heard have you ever heard the truth will set you free hands up if you've ever heard that being said great how many times after you've heard that does someone go into what that truth is and what it will set you free of if you've heard this, this, this verse or this line and then thereafter someone has explained what the truth is and what, the, what you're set free of, also hands up. And that's often the case. So I want to make a commitment with you, a deal. Today I will focus only on two things. Tonight I'll focus only on two things. One of them keeping my balance because if I fall over this carpet, it's going to be sports. The one is that we start off with the truth will set you free. And what, what that means, because we've heard that a lot and we've seen that a lot, but what exactly does that mean? And then secondly, we'll go over into how does that look in everyday life and take an example of a whole, a whole bucket worth of examples. So we're not going to unpack all of that. We're just going to look at one of those examples. So that's the commitment from my side. The commitment which I want to ask from you is that throughout the course of the sermon, I'm going to ask a couple of questions just here and there. And I want you to really ponder, the, the, ponder on the questions, to really answer those questions. It's very easy to, to sit through it, and, and I do this very well at work. When someone asks a question, you just sit and wait for the answer. Because if they ask the question, they probably do have the answer already. So I want to ask you to not be Renier. I want you to ask you to really think about, think about what God is asking us. I've had to answer these questions for myself over the last two weeks. And I want you to answer it for you, for, you, for you personally as well. Not because of the convictions which comes out thereafter. That is also great. But because of what God wants to do in our hearts as we start thinking about the answer of the questions. The process which we go through when we start pondering these things. Is that a deal? Can I say, I'm going to keep my, my half of the deal to look at these two things if you keep your half of the deal by answering those questions to yourself. Is that a deal? If you can't even answer this question, then the other questions is going to suck. Is this a deal? Okay, great. We have a deal. Well, me and Renier, me and Vian at least. So the truth has set you free is, starts with, but what is this truth? 
What is the truth that will set you free? It's great if we hear the truth will set you free. And I say, amen. I remember once being at a, a cycling race and in the, right in the, at the start, the one guy said, uh, all you need to do is to remember, lay your, uh, lay your sins down at the cross and you will be saved before the end of the race. And people were like, what a flippo. Like, I don't know what the heck he just said. I'm convinced that in his heart it makes sense. I'm convinced that it was with, I, I, I could see that the guy was, was convinced that, that he's, he's preaching to people. He, he, wants, this, he wants people to, to have what he has. But the breaking up of what is the truth, that is, that is where we start. Or in, or in his case, just breaking up and saying that this is what I feel, but this is actually what it means is so important. So in order for you to be set free of something, you need to know what that thing is. And the first and foremost thing is, uh, the first thing which we know is the everlasting death, going to hell. There's a truth which says God has sent His only Son to earth to die for us so that we don't have to die and that we can have the everlasting life with Him. Do we agree on that? Like that's a truth which we have and what we are set free from is to be in hell for eternity. And that's easy. It's easy to agree on that. But what you're also set free from is, if, if we have the correct truths, is the influence which the devil can have on us if we are deceived. So let's start off in, in John 8, verse 30 to 32. So I need to give you, either I need to give you a little bit of background or verse 1 to 29, or we need to read verses 1 to 32. So I thought I'll spare you that. I'll just give you the feedback. So in, in this section in John, it is an ex explanation of what God has done. He quiets the, the seas. He does these miracles. He feeds hundreds of, or thousands of people. And then his disciples are like, yes, who is this guy? We've been following now and he called us to, to follow him. But yes, what is he doing? Like, who is this guy? And then the answer comes in John 8. says, even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this is the basis. This is, this is what we are talking about the, the entire evening, is we're saying the truth will set you free. And the reason why I bring the scripture to the screen is to say that this is not something which is my opinion or which I think is, is a good thing for us to talk about. We are basing this, we are starting off in scripture. John 8, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free in verse 32. But let's break it up a little bit. Earlier in, the, in 30, verse 31, it says, hold to my teaching. The, this is the NIV. The ESV also says, um, believing in my word. And the equivalent for us in modern day society is reading the Bible. That's essentially what it means. Where do we find Christ's word? Where do we find the, holding, the hold to my teaching? We find that in the Bible. That, that is the equivalent of what he's saying here. If you, the, in the um, Afrikaans, the Boerskap translation, it's, it says, Dear die woord by reading the Bible. So the answer to this is, hold it to my teaching means reading the Bible. So if we now go back to, to, our, to, our, to the first question which we had, the truth will set us free. What it will set us free from We've now said it, it's, there's many things, but one is the influence of the enemy, and we're going to break, a, break up a, into, a little, uh, into other things as well later. But that truth which will set us free from that, from the eternal death, that truth is the Bible. That truth is, is every single um, thing we learn in the Bible. 
And those are hundreds and thousands of truths captured in the Bible. If God says, if Jesus says, um, hold to my teaching, it wasn't just one teaching, the, the teaching on the mountain, now we have, boom, do this, and now it's easy. There's thousands and thousands of lessons. And that's great, because that means life should be simple, and life should be straightforward. Because now we have this teaching, and we can just say, shut We listen to the Bible, and, and there we go. But in a modern-day society where there's Instagram and YouTube, and everyone can pretty much preach anything he wants at any given time and have it on a platform where it is where anyone can get it is dangerous because now suddenly all these truths are preached by pretty much anyone and how do we then start distinguishing between truths and supposed truths or false truths it becomes an activity on its own to be able to, to do that segregation. This is a truth, this is a false truth. This is a truth, this is a false truth. And that becomes extremely dangerous. That becomes, if you, if you just think about the damage it could do by, when you start believing false truths, that can be horrendous. Or even worse, someone who's seeking, someone who wants to know God, and the first advice, the first guidance he gets is a twisted truth. Something just off-center. Can you think of a, of a time in your life when someone maybe started a sentence with the Bible says more, the Bible says that, and then he quoted something which is like, yes, where does the Bible say that? <laughs> the, Bible, the Bible says that, and you're like, yes, I, I can't recall the Bible saying exactly that, but you also know that I don't know, really know if I can argue with this person, because maybe the Bible does say that in Moses 7, or or wherever that may be, it's like, yes, I'm, I'm really not sure if I, can, if I can argue with this person. Quickly think of, of an example in your life. Have you ever heard, you don't have to, have to say it out loud, but have you ever heard someone quoting the Bible, either completely wrong or just off-center? Like, not, not as it should have been. I remember a very vivid time in my life. Oh, that sounds rough. I wasn't in a dark place. I remember, I vividly remember an example in my life, in my second year at varsity. So we had calculus in the um, theology building on campus at, at the University of Pretoria. And that's great to have, by the way, just side note, it's great to have your calculus in the theology building. Uh, it really helps a lot because you don't have to study. Like it is, if you're a believer and you have calculus in the theology building, there's a verse that says, we can do all calculus through Christ who strengthens us. It is great. It is, you just rock up and you pass. It is fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Anir. Someone listens at least. So, uh, that put aside. But I remember one Tuesday afternoon walking out of the theology building, passing on grace, and two guys approached me. And I could see from a distance, they have set target. They're not going to anyone else. They're not going to pass me and go to a girlfriend like this act. And this, that's just me. And they approach me, and the one guy says, do you know Jesus? And I'm like, shop. I can have these kind of chats. And I'm just like, yeah. So have you given your, haven't you given your heart to the Lord? I said, yes. So do you know everything there is to know about Jesus? I said, no. He said, don't worry. Let me tell you. And that should have been the first alarm going off. The first red light should have gone off then, but it didn't. So I'm like, yes, I'm just gonna, we're going to chat like it now. This is going to be great. And the guy says, and he starts, Genesis 1. He says, Genesis 1 says that in the beginning there was nothing. I was like, yeah. He says, so if there was nothing, it means zero, nothing at all, which means there wasn't even a God. 
So that means at the beginning, everything had to start with a big bang, with evolution. And then God came somewhere after that. So what we know now is that the Bible, which we believe is the truth, says that God was not there in the beginning. What do you reply to that? Quickly tell the person next to you, without thinking, five seconds, boom. What do you reply to that? Go. Remember, you're standing in front of a theology building, eh? Right answers only. So I had a proper, well-thought-through response to the person. Um, yes. And that's where I stopped. It's pretty much how far I got. It's like, yes. Um, uh, yes. And then he saw the, the, um, the, the gap, and he said, like, this guy is not going to be able to have enough truth, enough ammunition against me. And the one guy started paging through the Bible, of the Bible, and the other guy narrates it. He says, John 13, and he says what's, what's in there, and he quotes it off-center. And he goes to Revelation, he quotes it off-center. He goes back to the Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, and I just have nothing against them. Absolutely nothing. And they quote. It's not something they think, they think, and they say, this might be somewhere in the Bible. They just give you these verses, and they say, this is this verse, this is what it means, and they are loaded with ammunition. There's just no way that you, that you can do anything against that. Or, uh, for me, it felt I could do anything against that. Because I did not have the ammunition to be able to fire back. And I walked back there, going to, back to race, telling a couple of my friends about this horrid experience which I just had. And we start a, a, a Bible study group in race, and we say, we're going to pray against this. Because although this guy messed me up, six love, that's not the biggest problem. Like, I, we, we can deal with that. The biggest problem is, how many other thousands or hundreds of people does he also find on campus which is maybe someone who's a new believer or someone who's not a believer at all, which you can give this twisted truth and this person starts believing. And he says, oh, I always knew there wasn't a God. Now I've got proof that there wasn't a God. Or whatever the case may be. Yes, and I am worried that I did not have the ammunition to be able to hit back when this happens. That being said, can you think of your favorite series? If you're, have you ever watched, or what is your favorite series? Tell the person next to you, of all the hundreds of series which you've ever watched, what is your favorite series you've ever watched? And if you sit here now and you say, I'm not a serious person, then the answer is Siem the Lawn. Because everyone has watched at least one episode of Siem the Lawn. Whether you're Afrikaans, English, Zulu, Kosa, Indian, I don't care. Like you've watched at least one episode of Siem the Lawn. That being said, it need not be this series, but if you, who knows what series this comes from? The, this comes from. Who knows what series this is? Great. That's the right one. Five the is for you. And I can see what my, my favorite series was, ne? I think my Marson. But anyway, this comes from Chuck. So if you've watched Chuck, take the next two minutes to just enjoy and think back about how good Chuck was. And if you've never watched Chuck, take the next minute, two minutes to, for me to just give you the little bit of info which you need to know. You haven't missed on much. So Chuck is the middle goofy guy, and he doesn't get many things right in life. He struggles. He works. He's a 
computer repair guy, but he often breaks computers more than he repairs them. He's also a guy who knocks over shelves, breaks TVs in the shop, loves every beautiful girl who comes in the shop, but when he has to talk to her, he doesn't get past meh. And then it stops. Chuck does not have a lot of success in his life in pretty much anything he does, because he's goofy, he's, he bumps into things, he falls, he always has a little scar or something bleeding somewhere. His shirts always have coffee stains or ketchup on them. Like, if I, have to, if I have to decide now, do I, will I trust Chuck with my life or my four-year-old son? It is a no-brainer. Like, Chuck is third place between the two of them. Definitely. But then, Chuck has one, got one thing going for him. He's got a photographic memory. So he can see something once, and then he can remember it. Or at least recall it. Now, this would have gone down well in that theology building for me. Yes, that would have been great adversity. But the problem is he can't recall it uh, when he wants to. He can recall it when it is triggered by something. So what happens, long story short, the entire series of Chuck is based around this friend of his who sends him military or um, American intelligence information, which ca captures all the most wanted criminals in the world, their identities, their families' identities, the organizations they are part from, the plans are the part of, the plans what, which they have, where they want to attack, when they're going to attack, the mafia of all the countries who has a mafia. We don't even know all those countries. That's how top secret it is. And everything just downloads in front of him and finds a way into his brain, and shortly after that, the fault self-destructs. And the only place in the world with all that extremely important information is in Chuck's brain. And now the FBI, the guy on the right, or Chuck's left, and the CIA, the person, no, that's the other way around. The CIA on this side and the FBI on that side decides, we need to protect this goofy guy, because either he's going to kill himself, or if someone else finds out about this, they're going to kill him. And this is the only place where all this intel of ours is stored, is in this weirdo's brain. And they start protecting him. And every now and again, the FBI thinks, yo, we remember this one guy, and maybe they are planning something. And when they show him a photo of that person, suddenly he just resurgitates all that information which happened. And this guy's this, he wants to do this, he's going there, and, and he gives him everything. And they're like, oh, great. And then they go stop the crime. And this works well for a while, and then they realize, yes, but if you take Chuck with to the crime scene, then he can see more people, he can recognize more faces, and he can give us more information. And sometimes they don't even know that there's a couple of civilians which is also involved in the crime. And Chuck just gives them all this information. This becomes very, very effective. You take Chuck with, he's not a, da a danger for anyone, he can barely look after himself, and then these two, um, on, the, on his left and right, essentially just becomes the hero. They save the day, they catch the bad guys, and Chuck just, just tips them off every time. But somewhere along the line, the bad guys realize what and who Chuck is. And that's a bad thing for Chuck. Like I say, he can barely keep himself alive. Now he needs to stay alive when other people want to kill him. And he realizes, yes, this is not, this is not so lacquer anymore. Like, this, is, this is going to end badly. And he says, I refuse to go on the next mission. Somewhere in season six of, of this series, he says, I refuse to go into the next mission because they are going to kill me. And these two are like, you can't refuse. You are a national asset. If we tell you to move, you move. And he says, nope, I refuse. They will kill me. Unless if you give me a gun. Like, bro, you can't even handle a laptop. 
the moment that thing has an i7 processor in it's too dangerous for you. Like we're not even, we're not even giving you that. And just, if I don't get a gun, I'm not going. And uh, after a little bit of back and forth, they decide, we really need this guy. We, we really need him to go. So how about we give him a gun with fake ammunition? How about we give him a gun? So just, just, it just feels okay. Like, and then he comes, and then he recognizes people, and that works. For quite a while, he has this, fake, he has this real gun, fake ammunition, and they just take him with, and he never has to use it. And even if he has to use it, the odds of him sh shooting a hole in his foot or something like that is much more likely than him actually being able to defend himself. And so it goes on. And with Chuck having his own ammunition or his own gun, he starts getting a lot of confidence. A little bit more, a little bit more. Because he has this ammunition, he has this, this self-defense mechanism with him. And as Casey and Sarah, the two besides him, start going, looking after the Russian mafia, he strolls this side. And as they start going to a different place, he strolls this side. And, and every now and again, he finds himself isolated, a little bit, uh, a little bit vulnerable. But he doesn't, he doesn't worry about that because he can defend himself. He's got, uh, he's got a gun and he's got ammunition. Until one day, on a deserted train station, Chuck makes his way around the train cart and there the enemy sits waiting for him. Knowing who Chuck is and knowing how valuable he is for the American intel, the guy sits there with a gun aimed directly at Chuck's face with a little red laser, bullet, uh, laser um, dot right between his eyes saying, Cheers, Chuck, it's your time. But Chuck doesn't stress because Chuck has a gun. And Chuck pulls his gun and surprisingly he does everything right, everything which he got taught. He pulls the gun, he puts off the safety and everything in one motion, he pulls the trigger and just makes Yes. And Chuck realizes he's been scammed. He thought they were truthful with him all the time and he thought, for, thought they gave him this ammunition, but actually it was fake ammunition. It was never in there. But luckily this is only in season six and there's nine seasons, so Chuck couldn't die. So Casey comes around the corner, shoots the bad guy and, and the season continues. But that's not the point. The point is for the next or for the foreseeable future, there's a fight between them of how could you do this to me? How could you deceive me with something which I thought was a truthful gun, uh, something which I could use to defend myself or even attack if I really needed to? And now I need to realize in the heat of the moment, in the face of the enemy, that that thing was not the real thing. Like, how bad is that? But it happens to us as well. Unfortunately, we see that happening to us as well. So the context in real life would be, this is what Chuck thought he had. And that's what Chuck actually had. And how that looks in real life is we get a so-called truth. Someone saying, the Bible says more. The Bible says that. And then he gives something off center. And when we sit facing the enemy, in our lives, in our families, maybe at work, with your children, with influences from schools. Then we pull this truth, which we thought was a truth. Children's, children should be seen and not heard. But the relationship which, we, which I thought we had is just nowhere. Was it a godly-based truth? Or was it maybe fake ammunition? And suddenly now we, we, we start thinking that I have all these truths in my belt. 
or all this ammunition in my belt, but the moment I start firing them in the face of the enemy, then I'm exposed. And there are hundreds, literally hundreds, of these fake truths which we get taught either verbally or just by someone setting an example, and it looks like it's working. So what we're going to do tonight for the rest of the, the evening is just look at a practical example of one of them. So don't worry, we're not going to break into, into hundreds of them. We're just going to look at one of them. And I want to ask you, have you ever heard someone say the following? Do not judge. You shall not judge. Who here has heard someone say that? Who here can recall the example when you heard that? Can you remember what the person used it for? Was it maybe as a self-defense? I remember very distinctly when I was in grade 9, many years ago, the girl gave her heart to Christ, what I could only imagine over a weekend. And uh, somewhere during the next week, one of the guys who had a lot of influence in the friends group said, so Friday night, we're drinking at this place. And she just said, nope, I'm not coming. And everyone's like, what? And she said, no, I'm not going. And immediately, it's a cross question, why not? She said, because my body is a temple and Christ has given it to me and what you want to do on Friday night is not is, is direct violation of what God is expecting from us it is sin and you can definitely not do that and still say that I'm doing my best to live a godly life 100% smack bang on the, on the truth and the counter to that is does the Bible not also say we should not judge if you're saying that me drinking on Friday night is wrong and there's nothing as big as small and small sin and the Bible says do not judge and what you're doing now is judging me then you're just as guilty as I am. So how dare you in front of all these people try and say I'm not allowed to if you are judgmental at heart and suddenly the whole conversation shifts. It went from her speaking a truth to the entire group hitting her and she's starting to defend. It's like no but I was not judging no but I was, not, I was just and she was annihilated in that conversation to such an extent that she completely pulled herself from the friends group maybe for the better but these three words came as ammo but also a false truth these are the first three words of Matthew 7 out of context it, may, it, it did exactly what it did that year or, or in that instance but let's put them in context and see how the false truth transforms to a valid truth and how that's supposed to look. So the rest of verse 1 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So let's stick to this example. From what I can recall from the situation, the ruler in which she used to judge the the situation was try and be as much as Christ. And what you are doing is not that. If we apply verse 2 to that scale of judgment, the measure which she used, it says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. Then the correct reaction question would have been, well, if, I, if you say that to me, then I'm going to say that to you as well. If you're going to call me out for drinking and not 
using my or not uh, protecting my body as a temple of Christ, then I'm going to expect you to do exactly the same and protect you, your body, and to treat your body as a temple of Christ. And would she have been able to do that? Definitely. And she has. And I can testify for the rest of at least the time when we were at school together, where she lived a holy life, making mistakes here and there, but where she lived a holy life and never returned to those, those ways. So the godly reply would not have been the first three words, only three words in an entire chapter. Do not judge. It would have been the, at least the first two um, verses, but we're going to get into the rest now. But at least the first two verses tells you the reason you should not judge. The reason why we say this is because we're going to expect this exact same judgment of you. But her criteria, her measure of judgment was godly. And if we would measure her with that same measure, she would have passed. Because first she said, I'm, going, I'm stepping out. I'm stepping out because I realize that is wrong. I take away from my life the thing which has been, been killing me, which has make, made me guilty. And I'm calling you to do the same. And the false truth, the false ammunition is those first three words. And let us never believe that. That the do not judge is ammo which we can use. Because the full context is, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's look at the next three verses. It says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your, own br in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank which is in your eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Going back to verse 2 where it says, you'll be judged by the same measure. What, it, what this verse actually tells us is not do not judge. It just tells us, humble yourself in front of Christ by asking Him, God, what is there in my life? Firstly, before you, before you send me out today, show me what is there in my life which I can work on. What is there in my life which is not 100% aligned with you? And use the Bible, use the word which you've given us to come and show me those things because I do not want to be the one who shows the, the splinter in someone else's eye when there's still a blank in my own. This verse does not say do not call out the thing in your brother's eye. It just says start with yourself. Complete shift of mindset where this verse was often used to say how dare you look at someone else when there's still so much in your own life. It doesn't say become perfect. It just says address what is there with you. Humble yourself in front of Christ first. In your quiet time in the morning saying, Lord, I know there's a lot of sin. Lord, I know what happened last night. Lord, I know what I'm doing here. Lord, I know my heart's condition against this person. Come help me, Lord. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to do this again. I'm struggling with this again. Lord, please come and help me. But the last verse, and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That is what you must do. It's not an option. You will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is a command. It is not an option. It's not we cannot hide behind, ah, but I'm not perfect. Ah, but there's something in my own eye. Or do not judge. It says you must remove that speck from your brother's eye. Brother being a brother in Christ, someone, someone in the congregation, man, woman, child, adult, doesn't matter. And that is so, so important for us to realize that it is not about not judging. That verse, actually, if you put that in context, it tells us you must judge. You must go show them, hey, this thing I'm seeing in your life, that's wrong. This thing I'm seeing in your life is not aligned with what God wants for you. But there's a difference. 
And that difference comes in, in a little bit of terminology. Conviction, conviction versus condemnation. Just two beautiful words. So the first, the definition of conviction. Conviction is about awareness. And the beauty of this awareness is that it is the first step towards growth and change. In other words, if I, if I go to someone and say, listen, I see this thing in your marriage. I see how you're treating your wife. Man, because I want the best for you and your marriage, and because I want you to be together and, be ha and have a happy marriage, you know you need to stop that. God wants more from you in your marriage than what is happening now, or in your relationship with your children, or in the way you treat people at work, maybe in the way you do business. And someone says, hey, in what I'm seeing in your life now, because I love you, I'm going to make you aware of this thing which is out of line, and that allows you to grow, that allows for good change to happen. And that is what the heart of conviction looks like. This, the alternative is a heart of condemnation. Have you ever heard the following? Someone say, I'm not mad. I'm just really, really disappointed. Have you ever heard that? Yes, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a great card to play when you're out of options. But the reality is that condemnation has guilt and punishment attached to it. No place for growth. None whatsoever. By heaping that guilt on top of the situation, on top of the sin, it just makes the sin hurt even more. And instead of creating an awareness and a place for the person to grow, what he now feels is, this hurts so much that I don't even want to talk about it anymore. This hurts so much that I don't even want to be burdened with this anymore. And there's no opportunity for growth. There's no opportunity for change. The reason why we started to believe the false ammunition of do not judge is because of the other sin which preceded it, a heart of condemnation. Where people started pointing out the wrongs in others' lives with guilt and hurt and pain attached to it. You bad person, how dare you do that? I've forgiven you four times. How dare you do it again? I'm not mad at you. I'm past the point of being mad. I'm just really, really disappointed. And with the heaviness which comes with that, becomes, please man, do not judge. Flip it. I, I can't take that anymore. Do not judge. And the do not judge lie comes from the heart of condemnation. But a heart of conviction, where I say, I'm going to create an awareness for you of the sin in your life and allow an opportunity of growth to be there. That is something completely different. That helps the other person. That saves the other person from a lot of heartache, a lot of sin, a lot of trouble, and a lot of explanation in front of the Lord one day. If you really love someone, if you honestly love someone, you will not let an opportunity go by not making a person aware in a loving way of a place where you can grow. Because either you're going to do it or he's going to stand in front of God in trial someday having to explain all of that. And you can save him from, from very much of it. Let's move a little bit on through Matthew. We're not going to lead, read all the 11 chapters because just just not enough time. But we're going to go to Matthew 18. And start off at, at verse 15, which says, If your brother or sister sins, 
go and point out their fault. Dan does that, boom. End of story. That is literally the opposite of what has been believed, the false truth of do not judge. So if you put this first part of verse 15 against the first three words in Matthew 7, then you would say, yes, I'm so confused. But those first three words were taken out of context. It was false ammunition, which we are never allowed to use, not in defense or in offense, because it was taken out of, out of context. In the full context of the verse, we read, if your brother or sister or anyone, for that matter, sins against you, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. Extremely important part of you have won them over is to understand that it is not a relationship between me and the person which I've saved. It is not I've won them over by allowing them to not be bad anymore, helping them to not be bad anymore. If you look at the ESV and any commentary on that specific point of won them over, it is about this long because it says you have won them back for Christ. They have come back into God's will in that specific area of their lives. And that is how important it is. What a privilege that is huh? to be able to say that God allows us to win people back for Him in a specific area of their lives. That is massive. That's huge. If you know someone or maybe think that once saved is always saved, then that's a dangerous place to be because there's a whole list of people who has given their life to Christ at some, pay, at some stage and slowly but surely backslid and found themselves in a space where God is barely present, if at all, in their lives. But what, it, what verse 15 teaches us is God calls us to go point out those things to people, to say, hey, I see a place in your life where things aren't going as it should be going. Oh, I see something in your life which I've never seen before, but wow, since when do you talk like this? Since when is your heart so bitter? Since when are, are, is this pridefulness there? Since when do I see so much shame? Since when do you treat your wife like this? Oh, wow, I've never experienced you speak to your children like that. I remember you being a, a great supporting wife when we just met as friends. And now, oh, what's going on there? God calls us to be able to talk those truths into lives. And that's difficult. If you sit here and think, you're near, nope, we don't judge. We still don't judge. I want to give you the following example. Think of the following three doctors. You have someone in your family, maybe a child, a parent, brother, sister, husband, wife, who's terminally ill. Your options on doctors are three people. One is a world-renowned doctor, which is great. He does this operation time and time again, every week, numerous times, 100% success rate. The second doctor is very, is very new to the, to the industry. You don't really know him. No one really knows him. No, really, no re bad references, but also no good references. And the third person is terrible. Like you just know like this guy is renowned for flopping these operations. But he's cheap, and he falls within medical aid tariffs. So he's, he's, he's still there. Those are your three options. I'm not going to ask to raise hands, but come on. I think we, we're all on the same page. You go for doctor number one, the guy with a good reputation. And the reason why we are all aligned that we go for doctor number one is we have judged his medical history. We have judged his medical ability. We have judged whether we believe he's capable or not. We judge every day. 
And that's okay. For some reason, the world has just taught us, but when it comes to faith, when it comes to holiness, how dare you judge? Do not judge is the first three words of chapter 7. In context, it says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them back for Christ. Boom. That's massive. Yes, that's cool. That's cool, man. Quite cool. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So we need to put this in context. You're not just playing the numbers game. Now we are three, you are one, you better listen. What this actually means is, the, or the counter to, to this verse is, hey, you're not allowed to gossip, ne? But what this verse actually means is, I'm not going to someone else to discuss the sins, the wrongs of that person. I'm actually going to someone else to say, I can also make a mistake. I've seen these things in this person's life, which I truly believe is, is contrary to what God is expecting from him. I have addressed it with him, but before I go back, please test my heart. This is what I saw. This is how I experienced it. Do you see the same? Do you see the same which I am seeing? Can we pray through it? And the real discussion is on the condition of your heart when you approach the person, rather on the sin, focusing on the sin of that person. That will be part of the discussion. It's, it's inevitable. But the real discussion when you do take someone along is not how bad that person actually is. It is the condition of my heart. Do you agree that this is something which we as believers are called to go discuss with this person? And then you take them along and say, let's go chat to this person. Luckily for all of us, if that person knows Matthew 18, you will listen then because the next step is quite harsh. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the whole church. And if they refuse to listen, even into the church, treat them as you would do a pagan or a tax collector. That's quite harsh. But the point of this entire verse, of this entire section, this entire chapter, is that God has called us to be able to speak into one another's lives. The question is just how do we do it? With a heart of conviction, where we allow the person to become aware and grow, or with a heart of condemnation, we pile on the pressure, maybe resentment or shame even. If we go back to John 8, where we started off, he said, even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. In other words, the truths which I give you in the Bible will show you what to do. Then you will know the truth because you've read the Bible. And the truth, the Bible, what we learn there, will set you free. And for the context of this evening, what we are set free from is the condemnation of the enemy. The impact which he has on our lives when we suddenly start to say, sure, I'm not in this thing alone. People are suddenly speaking and say, are suddenly showing me these blind spots which the enemy has created for me. But also, all of us is going to be able, or will have to, give reckoning of, of each and every action which we had on earth. And if you really love someone, if you really care for someone, you'll speak into his life to help him to minimize that as much as possible with a convicting, loving, caring heart. And that is what we are calling one another to do. He said, let's break down this false ammunition of do not judge. Because if we sit with that do not judge ammo in our back pocket, in the face of the enemy, he will laugh at us and say, that's nothing. You are so dead. 
because the do not judge has not led anyone to Christ, has not helped anyone live a more holy life. But the therefore go out, if your brother or sister sins, show them that they have sinned. That has led people to Christ. That has helped believers be, grow in ways which God wanted them to grow. That has made people more and more holy. And that has refined communities all over the world. And people are speaking into one another's lives. So here's an ammunition test for tonight. The, f- the three words, starting chapter 7, alone, out of context, do not judge, is false ammunition. It's false blanks. It will never, ever, ever do any damage to the enemy. It will never proclaim God's name. Never, ever. And if, like me, you have ever said this, I want to challenge you to never say that again. And if someone has defended themselves against you, saying, you will not judge me, I want, to, I want to invite you to call them out on it, to say, that's out of context. God has called us to judge one another. It just depends how we do it and with what heart we call the sin out in one another's lives. Is it with a heart of conviction to make them aware and to help them grow? Or a heart of condemnation to shame them? Or to put extra pressure? A heart of conviction God works with. So here's my my challenge to you for the week. To take one Bible verse, and this might even be in small group or in the coffee before small group, or maybe at work, or maybe with your husband or wife at home. But to take the following up to say, one Bible verse which I know, I'm going to discuss with someone and get their interpretation thereof. It might be super straightforward. It might be as easy as I can do all calculus through Christ who strengthens me. And you get the other person's take on it. And maybe it becomes a long conversation. Or it will be, God has sent his only son to die for my sins. And that means I am free and I don't have to earn my salvation. And the other person says, yeah, that's exactly how I see it. And that's also fine. But my invitation to you is to go test your ammunition. Go test what you have in your heart. Because the safe place in which we test it with fellow believers is fantastic. But the world out there is not a safe place. And we don't want to realize in the middle of battle that, oh, this thing which I've held so, so dear to my heart now suddenly fires blanks and I'm so exposed. So, so exposed. I've been there. It sucks. It, you're so, so vulnerable. And there's nothing you can do about it if you realize it in the moment. Secondly, I want to challenge you to, to fire your first shot of that true ammunition. Go ask God, who you must talk to. Ask God, who have I seen done something wrong? Like my Afrikaans in the sentence I see. Why don't you call me out? Come on. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. Why don't uh, who? Who do you must who must you go ask? And that's easy. It starts with the following. Can you think of an example? in the last month, which you've seen someone you care for doing something which you knew were wrong. Can you think of an example? I want to challenge you one further. Without saying a name, tell the person next to you of that example. Something which you wish you've seen, someone you know, someone you care for. You've done something wrong which you saw, you, you experienced it. 
and he knew you should have, but maybe haven't spoke, spoken to him or addressed it. Take 30 seconds to a minute then. And just tell the person next to you, this was a situation like that. The second question I want to ask you is, can you recall a time, maybe recent or maybe not recent, where someone did this for you? They called out something in your life and how did you react to it? It's very difficult when it's your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, fiance, and the other say, yes, I've told you so many times to stop doing that. That's a little bit more difficult, but also called out. Also called out on our sin for us to believe. So one thing which I've started doing from 2016 is I sent five friends or five people who have spent a lot of time with me throughout the course of the year a message in the first week of December. And that message goes something in the line of, Hi, thanks for a great year and thanks for your impact in my life. I want to ask you one last favor. Can you please take the next two weeks and think of a place in my life where I can be better? I'm giving you free reign on all areas of my life, spiritual, how I treat my wife, how I treat my children, how I work, what's my work ethic, where, how hard do I train, is my yes, my yes, anything. I give you free reign on every area, area of my life. And I promise you two things. One is whatever you say, I promise I'll go, I'll, go, I'll go brave through it. I'll entertain it. doesn't matter what it is. And secondly, I will not get offended with what you're saying. I always get offended. I have never... Since 2016 till now, and it's almost December. Never gone through a December not offended. Not once. Well, there was once when I was stuck on an island very long ago. Like my dad, oh no, 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 wait, I was very offended there as well. Now that I, now that I think about it. No, yes, I was very offended there. Bad example. But that's not the point. The point is that I always thought I'll have, I have very good friends. Very good people spending time with me is going to reply something like, Hi, Renir. You are so awesome. There is nothing in your life which you can improve. Thanks for being the best. Hashtag amazing. <laughs> no. I don't have those kind of friends. I get essays and essays. And you click read more four times <laughs> because of the things which I can do better in my life. It sucks. But it's the best thing which could have happened to me. And then I told, decided in 2018, I'm going to tell my wife that if ever I get the same feedback two years in a row, she can keep me accountable that it has to change within one month. <laughs> now people are like, Renier, last year I told you that. And the things comes again, it's like, bro, come on. Come on, you've only seen like this much of my year. I promise I worked on it. But that doesn't matter. This thing come and it comes back. And my wife is just like, ah. Come. <laughs> but that's how we point out the truth in other people's lives. I'm not saying it's fun, I'm just saying it's good. But God has called us to do this. Maybe not in such an extreme experience or such an extreme example, 
but he has called us in Matthew 18 when he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. That is the godly truth, the truth, the ammunition, which will never fail you in any instance, wherever you go. It will help people who does not know God to know God, and it will help people who already knows God to, uh, to have a, a boost in their spiritual life. That's a promise. That ammunition will never fail you, and you will never be the chuck of the world, the chuck of the spiritual world, where you draw your gun and you realize there is fake ammunition. Because this is the truth. And if you compare all these chapters with three words, it's easy to see where the truth lies and where the taken out, of uh, taken out of context false ammunition lies. I do not judge. A false truth which we'll never believe again. As I've mentioned, there are many such examples. And if God convicts your heart of another false truth in your life, or maybe in someone else's life, do address that as well and do climb into that as well. But for tonight, my challenge for you is to to go out and address the truths which you've seen needed to be addressed in those around you. And if you really take that seriously, you will also be the person who gets addressed. And I want to invite you to have an open heart for those conversations. So I'm going to pray for us now. Oh no, wait, before I pray for us. The things we are set free from by believing this truth is first of all the hell to speak into someone's life and say bro you maybe think you know God but you don't or you maybe proclaim something but you live something different attacked from the enemy living an ungodly life and then also moving outside of God's will having to, to give to take ownership of all our deeds someday that is what we are set free from by believing this truthful truth rather than the false truth, the ammunition which can never fire, which says, do not judge. I'm going to pray for us, and then afterwards I, I want to challenge you to, to take a couple of minutes and pray into this as well. Two things. God, where do you want me to address the sin in someone else's life? Protect my heart that I do it in a way that creates awareness for them and grows them. And then secondly, God, please send other people to point out the sin in my heart and expect it to happen. I want to challenge you into those two prayers. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to leave you to pray through that, and then after that, get a lacquer coffee. Yeah, Lord, thank you that you've not sent us on this journey alone. Thank you, Lord, that you've given people to speak into our lives. Protect us from spiritual pride. Protect us from prideful hearts in any aspect of our lives. Allow us, Lord, to grow through your community by giving people boldness to speak into your life, to speak into our lives. That they will come speak into, that we will come and speak up for our own obedience, for their blessing, and for your will to come. Lord, protect our hearts in the way which we do this. That will be hearts of conviction, Lord, truly dependent on you and nothing else. That we go speak to people so that they can be more in your will and not just simply because it is an easy way to tell them what they're doing wrong. Give us truly convicting hearts and let condemnation not be part of us at all. Lord, I ask that you give us boldness to take this step of obedience 
then the obedience to actually take it through, and then the wisdom and the guidance to have the correct words in the situation. But let us not out of fear of man forget that the fear of God is the start of wisdom. Yeah, Lord, as we dismiss tonight, Lord, I pray that the heaviness of what, of, or the weight of, of this topic, Lord, which you have come to expose to us, Lord, is overwhelming for us and that we cannot do anything else but go have the conversations which you have convicted us, maybe for long, maybe for years already, maybe for months, maybe for weeks, that we know that we have to speak, in, we have to speak into this person's life. Give us that boldness, Lord, and also prepare our hearts when others are going to speak to us. Allow us to welcome change. Maybe it's something we've heard a lot, but when we hear it now, that it will be truly, truly with heart willing to change. We thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. Change us according to your will and let your will be done in us. Amen.